0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier Early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. What's up, guys? Sorry for the poor audio quality uh, on my mic right now. I'm recording this from home because uh, I'm completely disorganized this week and didn't get my introduction done on time. Anyway, enough talking from me. A lot of you have asked me over uh, the years to dive more deeply into mindfulness for children, meditation for children, and I um, have been very slow to do so, but uh, we have two of the uh, best people uh, to talk about it on the podcast this week. Susan Kaiser Greenland has been writing about this issue for years and um, has been teaching uh, meditation to children for many, many years uh, and is... Really well regarded in this field, and uh, her co author, Annika Harris, uh, has uh, been doing the same uh, for uh, many years as well. Um, and they've written a book called Mindful Games. And it really goes right to this issue of, of how to teach uh, meditation to children. And um, they have a lot to say that will be useful uh, for many, many parents, and myself included. Um, Anika, just just you'll hear this referenced, is uh, happens to be married to a former podcast guest, Sam Harris. Uh, who's a, a great friend of mine, and a, as is Annika. So you'll 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 hear that familiarity in our in our uh, discussion. I've never met Susan Kaiser Greenland. Um, we did this uh, interview remotely. They the, uh, they were not in town, so we did the interview remotely, uh, which we usually don't do, but uh, in this case, we made an exception because it's such an important topic. So here we go: Susan Kaiser Greenland and Annika Harris from ABC. This is the Ten Percent Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I'm very happy to have you. Thank you both for doing this. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having us for having us.
0: Susan, let me start with you. How did how did you get into meditation? I knew you used to be a, you used to be an ABC lawyer.
2: Yep, ABC and then CBS. Um, so it's kind of fun to be back here for for today. How did I get into meditation? My husband made me do it, to be honest with you. Uh, we were facing a family crisis at the time, a health crisis. I was pregnant with my second child. I was working part-time as a lawyer for the ABC owned and operated stations at the time and um, I he had a pretty lousy health prognosis so I started doing my research and believe it or not I came upon food as being a real problem that we needed to deal with. So one day I was up there on a stool in a Small New York kitchen, pretty pregnant, pulling out of the cupboard absolutely every bit of processed ingredients, sugar, white flour, you name it, and throwing it into a big black garbage bag. My husband walks in and says, "Honey, I've got a babysitter tonight because remember we've got a two and a half year old. Um, we're going to go learn to meditate. We're going to the Zen Center." I said, oh, "I can't. You know, I got I got to deal with this food." And he said, "No, no, 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 no. We're going to go." I stop. I realize. He's working with this health problem. He probably really wants to learn to meditate, and so I'm going to go with him. So I tell him that, and he says, "No, no, 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 no. You need to learn to meditate because you're driving me crazy." <laughs> and that's the origin story. The rest of it is I get to the so zen. did he learn how to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, he okay. he meditates pretty regularly now, although he went through a period of not regu- meditating, but he's doing it again.
0: And by the way, is his health okay?
2: Oh yeah, okay, this okay. was. Gosh, this was thirty, almost thirty years ago. So, but thank you for asking. Uh, so, we get to the Zen Center. We sit down. We take a little class. We sit down, and I lasted about two minutes on the cushion before I went running out into the street. I just couldn't tolerate the anxiety, and my husband stayed there the rest of the time, and then came out, and that was the that was the beginning.
0: How did you come back to it?
2: I started. Uh, listening to tapes. We ended up moving out of the city. I took a leave of absence from my job, and we went out to Garrison in Cold Spring, New York, ate a lot of rice and beans and organic food, and my husband got better. And I listened to tapes. I had two young kids by then because i had had my son. I couldn't go to IMS, or, even though it was pretty close by. Let me so just I,
0: explain what that is. IMS is Insight Meditation Center in, in Massachusetts, where people go on retreat. But you couldn't go there, so you were...
2: So I listened to their tapes. I listened to Jack and Joseph and Sharon's tapes over and over again, and that's how I got started.
0: And how did you make it your, what I understand to be basically your full-time job? How did, that, how did we get to this point?
2: Uh, my husband got better. Uh, he is a writer, and most of his work was out here in L.A., so we moved to L.A. Um, I started studying with a... Teacher in the Tibetan tradition out here, uh, Ken McLeod. It really was helpful to me for the stress. I took the bar exam out here. I became, I started working at CBS out here. Lots of stress, young kids. So it was helping me with stress, and um, I thought, wow, if it can help me, maybe it can help my kids. And this was long before mindfulness and kids was a thing. Uh, John and Mila hadn't even written their book, Everyday Blessings. Then. That's
0: John Kabat-Zinn and his wife Mila, who wrote a book, <laughs> Everyday Blessings. Yes, about meditation for kids.
2: So I started practicing with my own kids, and um, and pretty soon after that, I met Annika, and um, and then Annika and I were started doing volunteer teaching out in the Toluca Lake Elementary School out here in the valley.
0: Which brings us to Annika. Annika, I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to pretend I haven't known you for a while. <laughs> um, right. uh, so, but having said that, for the rest of uh, the, for everybody else is listening, how did you get into meditation?
1: Um, I actually originally got into it because um, I was training as a dancer. I, a few careers ago, was was a professional dancer, and I had an injury. Um, it was actually in yoga class that I discovered meditation. Um, and then I shortly after that met my husband, Sam Harris, who had been studying it for many years. And um, I met some great meditation teachers through him, including Joseph Goldstein, um, And just found it to be such a transformative uh, practice and experience that uh, it just became part of my life pretty quickly. Um, And pretty early on, it was at the first retreat that I sat, I started thinking about um, how helpful this could have been for me to learn as a child and all of the struggles that I dealt with as a child Um, and thinking about the fact that we teach physical education to children um, in schools across the country, and we value that, and, and that it would be, it kind of became this incredible, ridiculous dream of mine that that one day we could teach this skill to, to children as well. I actually remember the first time you and I had dinner, I think. Um, I told you it was this crazy fantasy, and you were the first person to say, you know, I actually think this might be coming. Um, you, you knew more about all the work that was going on across the country than, than I did at that point
0: yeah but you should never listen to me.
1: <laughs> you were right well,
0: we'll see um I think it's so cool the way you put it though we teach kids physical education we need to this is an entirely different kind of education that 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 is equally if not more useful but when mm-hmm. when you say just let me stick on you for a second when you say it had this this big effect on you meditation w- mm-hmm. what do you mean by that specifically?
1: uh well, I think in general, I find there there are two effects um, when you develop a meditation practice, um, but one is really just the psychological effect of—I um, mean, I hate to reduce it to a coping mechanism, but it's—it's a—it's a coping mechanism, and it teaches you about your own psychology. It teaches you about how you react to certain things, and it gives you a broader range of of choices. Um, it makes you—it empowers you really to make different choices. Both in how you experience your life, how you view your life, how you frame certain situations. And there's a relief that comes with getting a break from your mind, as you know now that <laughs> you, you practice more than I do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I need it more than you do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I need to give you credit uh, because you uh, played a huge role in the development of my practice. When I met you for the first time, it was maybe the second or third time I was meeting Mm -hmm. Sam. We were backstage. I I told this story in 10% Happier. We were backstage at... a debate that i was moderating for nightline uh with your husband head-to-head with deepak chopra and uh there were a few other people on the stage as well and Mm -hmm. um the the video of that is awesome if anybody wants to go look it up on youtube (laughs) anyway more consequentially for me uh backstage you and sam were like you should go on a meditation retreat and i was like no i'm not (laughs) doing that that sounds horrible and you really you guys very in a way that because you both had so much credibility in my eyes that mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, these people are not that weird, um, mm-hmm. so maybe I should right. do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think th- that's, that happens a lot in my life, and I don't know if you've had that ex- experience now that you, you know what it's like and you know the benefits it can bring. I think it was because of um, our commonalities, you know, the things I could, I heard you talking about struggling with, I just knew how much of an antidote to all of that that was for me, and... Yeah, I've met many people I think do their first retreat. They're dragged, they're kicking and screaming by their <laughs> by their well intentioned friends.
0: Yeah, well, you guys changed my life, so big thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so Susan, let me get let me get back to you, and and we'll get down to the nub here uh, on kids. Um, so, how did you go from teaching this to your kids? to what, you, what you're doing now, which is on a much grander scale. And and how did those initial forays go with your kids? How old were they at the time? How did they react to it?
2: Well, I was practicing for a while before I started practicing with my kids. And basically how practicing with my kids started is um, I was going through a, a serious type of training that required a lot of practice time. And remember, I was had a law practice at the same time so i was getting up at five thirty in the morning and practicing and then getting the kids up and getting everybody ready for wow school you were work. going for it yeah i was going for it and, and i'm glad i did it um and i had just a intuition at one moment to just open the door because I was always going into this bedroom next to where both kids were pretty young at that time where they were sleeping and I just had this intuition why am I closing the door just open the door and sure enough that first day my son who was uh, like a three-ish at the time toddled in and um sat down next to me and i didn't know much at that time about mindfulness or kids or child development so i just assumed he was a uh, a a yogi you know a natural <laughs> yogi and that he was <laughs> meditating uh you couldn't go and buy a cushion or something so i got a rubber duck and i got a pillow and it became a regular ritual. Uh, he would just come in every morning and uh, sit there for a little bit and stare at the rubber duck and then kind of fall over and have his head on my lap while I meditated. At the time, I was absolutely convinced that the guy was meditating, and later I learned more about attachment theory and child development and realized he probably just wanted to be with his mom in some alone time. But that's how it got started.
0: But I'm, I'm impressed by the kid nonetheless, because if my son, who's almost three, walked in the room while I was meditating. He would not sit quietly and stare at a rubber duck if I happened to have one. He would smack me in the face or ask me for an <laughs> iPad or his bottle.
2: Well, it was pretty early in the morning, so I don't know that he ever really woke up. It was almost like he just kind of came in half-sleeping, and he was still in a kind of sleepy state. But i got to tell you, he's 24 now, and he's meditating every day. It's been a while since he he went a long time without meditating, but I think he does have a natural talent for it.
0: But how do you do this? So your kids were, so you when you first started formally introducing it to them, how do you do it in a way that's not so annoying that they rebel against you and reject it permanently? Because for example, when I was a kid, my parents used to take me camping and I hated it. They were hippie, recovering hippies. And I hated camping and I still hate camping and I will not do it unless I have to do it.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, you're pointing to something. Uh, when my when the first book I wrote, The Mindful Child, came out, my son was in middle school or high school at the time, and one of the teachers asked him, "Hey, did you practice mindfulness as a kid?" And he said, "No, absolutely not." And then uh, she said, well, did you stop at the door and take a couple deep breaths before leaving? And he said, yeah. And did you do this and did you do that? And he came home and he said, mom, I had no idea that that stuff was mindfulness. And I think we don't really need to use the word mindfulness in meditation. Modeling is a better way to go. And. You know, the more I asked my kids uh, to do this, the more resistance I got. I was telling Annika a story on the way over about when Seth and I took our kids to the Zen Center, and one of them said, uh, how long do I have to pretend that somebody stole my brain? And the other <laughs> one said, I think I'm going to have to hawk on the holy plans. And my son looked up at me and said, or, I'm sorry, my husband looked up at me and said, sorry, you know, we're out of here. And that was our... Our experience with a family retreat.
0: So, the lesson there is what Just teach practices that you're not you're not don't try to get your kid folded into a pretzel on a cushion. Give them everyday tools that 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 will allow them to do sort of free range mindfulness.
2: I think the lesson is to practice yourself, learn the practice yourself, embody it, then start to try to understand the concepts, uh, the universal themes that we're teaching. And then find ways that to just drop them into what you're already doing as opposed to bring this in as an outside thing. Mm-hmm.
1: I would also add, we, we talked about this um this conversation came up on the way here, Susan said also because I had asked Joseph Goldstein this question um after we had our first daughter, with the same fears you just mentioned in mind. Um that how you know, how do I teach this to my children without it becoming a power struggle and um you know, I think we all understand that that fear of the very thing we want to teach our child is the thing they're going to resist learning the most um, and his advice was so wonderful, and it's really helped and it's basically it's you know it's um so beautifully told in Susan's story of opening the door, which is um Joseph explained to me that most of the Parents he knows with practices who have children who also practice didn't actually try to teach them, they just modeled it for them, so he recommended things that I've done with my children, like um, practicing in front of them. We have a little area in our house where there's a mat, and the the kids play there, and I actually added a couple of cushions there, and I almost never do it, but occasionally i'll just decide to practice for two minutes in front of them and it's it's a practice for me it 's a pretty interesting challenge to Sit and meditate in the midst of family life and kids, um, right, and
0: not knowing whether they're putting fighting. their fingers in the socket. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, but then they see you and they understand. There, it brings up interesting questions. They've asked a lot. What are you doing? Why are you closing your eyes? Um, and the older they get, the more interesting those those conversations are and without telling them they have to do anything they just see that this is something mom is doing and that it's important to me and that i find it useful and um they see it and then they, there are also just these inevitable conversations that come up because um it's there and that's not to say that many of those times they're just yelling at me to stop meditating <laughs> <laughs> but it's the whole range you know sometimes as susan said they'll come sit down with me um and i don't know what they're doing <laughs> but, they're they're interested because they see me doing it, and I think um, that's right. And I I can't stress enough the point Susan made, which is I think the most important thing we can do um, for our children is have a practice ourselves.
0: So so I, that's actually what I tell parents um, all the time because people ask me at the at, when I go out and give speeches. Um, but I have a comment and a question. The comment is completely random and useless. But this on this issue of. Um, kids and rebellion and rejecting everything their parents like. It just reminds me of how my kid was born. I just, I, I for years, I gave him this edu- you know, musical education. I played him all this like the Beatles and the Stones and Credence. And his favorite song is uh, I Got to Move It by Madagascar 3.
1: <laughs>
0: so, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I figure that is a that is an, uh, a harbinger of things to come. <laughs> so but, but my question is, are you guys saying that, that, that you shouldn't teach kids formal meditation, that all we have to do as parents is just model it ourselves and we're good to go?
1: Uh, Susan's pointing at me. <laughs> I would say the short answer is no. She might have a different answer, actually. Um, I think my intuition is that it might not be the best role for parents to have, but I think um, – I mean, I think –
0: Oh, so it can be taught obviously in schools, I think but we should not,
1: yes no, I think we should we should yeah. be teaching children and I think I think it's more that we have to be careful about what we do with our children and we don't it's definitely something you don't want to force. you don't want to tell them they have to do it if they don't want to do it. I think it's about developing their interests so that so that I mean, I think the the ultimate goal is, yes, so that you can teach them so that they become interested enough that you can
0: and, so, so maybe the recipe is, practice at home in a way that you're open with them about it, but not preachy, and then make sure they get into situations in school at the right age where somebody else who's not as annoying as you is teaching it to them.
1: <laughs> yes, although the other thing is Susan has developed this brilliant curriculum, um, and one of the wonderful things about it is a lot of it is not just um, you know traditional seated meditation practice. She has all these wonderful games, which... Most kids enjoy doing and parents can incorporate all of these things into their daily lives. And you're such a, really you're such wonderful. a
2: good salesperson.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, so let's talk about that, Susan. So you've got a new, you, you both have a new book and then a kind of a set, a companion, uh, piece, uh, both of them under the title of Mindful Games. So can you just walk walk me through what those are? Yeah, but can
2: I go back and just fill in a little bit about the last question Just a podcast.
0: There's no rules. You can do whatever you want.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I think there's something in between parents teaching kids and parents not teaching kids. And I think that's parents really taking the time to learn and practice and develop a feel for it themselves. And once they have a feel for it, once they have a visceral, experiential sense of what practice is and what the benefits are and how it's actually helped them, then they're going to intuitively be able to be better present with their kids and be responsive to the signals that they're getting from their kids. Mm -hmm. So if a child is open and receptive and wants a little bit of instruction... That's fantastic, especially if it's coming from a place where you have personal experience with that. Mm -hmm. If a child is starting to roll their eyes and push away, then to just be able to let it go without holding onto it or having any hope for expectation. That's something we learn from the practice. It helps us with our practice to do that over and over again with our kids. And we're modeling for our kids a different way of being. So if you think of the meditation as a way of creating a different way of being in the world. A way of training to be and to respond to situations differently than people who haven't had this experience then We will trust our intuition more and be able to Kind of go with the flow with our kids and then all day long is a learning experience when we're giving them direct instruction if that happens fantastic if we're not we're teaching them by modeling so that's that's what I would say about the parents teaching kids because it's uh, it's great when kids are getting this kind of input and this kind of um, modeling from all different elements of their system, the kids and the schools and the community.
0: But so so uh, just to be super practical about it, I get that if you're a parent, you don't want to be overly pushy. But if you're a parent, you really do care that your kid learns these skills. How do you make that happen without being too pushy? How do you get them in a situation where they're learning it perhaps from others uh, in a way that, that it's likely to stick? And what is the right age to even start?
2: Well, you can start from the very, very beginning. Um, you can start when you are have a newborn and when you're walking and when you're carrying him or her. But um, And you can start early on as toddlers just by doing things like when you're feeling upset, grab the snow globe on the counter if you've got one or or grab a glitter ball or something and say, hey, mommy's mind feels like this right now. See all this glitter? Mommy's mind is a little bit busy and, and I can't really think clearly. Can you stay with me and can we feel our breathing and watch this glitter settle? And then together you co-regulate. You help each other and you're modeling for your kids how to regulate. Um, and then, you know, Annika's done a brilliant job with this with her kids as far as trying to set up small groups of local parents or just a couple of other families where you all get together and do this as a monthly, you know, potluck or morning activity or something like that so that you're not relying on a school if the school isn't offering the type of instruction you want um, or the type of modeling that you want. Uh, but it's not just you, so it becomes more of a community um, endeavor rather than just a single uh, family or parent uh, trying to tell their kids to do something.
0: Great, and so now that we, this is an equally good segue to get to, to the book and the uh, uh, accompanying games. Can you can you t- tell us tell us about all of that?
2: We're pointing at each other. No, I'm, I'm, pointing, I'm,
0: at I'm pointing at you, Susan, <laughs> Susan but I, I will make sure that Annika gets gets per se.
2: Uh, the book and the cards well the how they're just uh, games you know it's a way of trying to make these practices fun in ways that you know you don't need to even say the word mindfulness and in ways that teach the type of self-regulatory skills that people are often drawn to with mindfulness as far as stress reduction and and executive functioning without losing the universal themes that really give The, uh, get in my mind are the essence secularizing the core of the Buddhist practice. And I understand this is a secular broadcast and our program is a secular program, but it is secularizing a practice that has a values component in addition to a executive function and self regulation component. So in these games, we're weaving through not only these self regulatory skills like stopping, focusing, and that sort of thing, but we're also weaving in values based components like Caring and connecting, and that sort of thing.
0: Just as an aside, I wouldn't describe this podcast as uh, secular. I'm I'm a Buddhist, uh, I'm, I'm a Buddhist atheist. So, I mean, I think I trust my li- listeners to be smart enough to suss out what's useful for them and what they agree with and what they disagree with. So, you don't have to worry about a- any Thank of that you. stuff here. But back to the book and the games. Give, give me some examples. Like, what kind of games would I be playing with my kid? And and again, what are the age ranges where I could start doing this?
2: Well, you can start with toddlers uh, with simple things like stopping and feeling your breathing. There's a cute little song that a lot of toddlers like, uh, and they sing it, and then that helps them understand uh, that if they stop and feel their breathing, they'll feel a little bit more settled and relaxed. You could play games like the snow globe game that I was mentioning with the glitter ball. You could play games like rolling balls back and forth Uh, quickly describing what's going on in your mind and what's going on in your body. That's for a little bit older kids. Um, Counting breaths, some really classical meditation practices that are uh, boiled down into simple developmentally appropriate and and hopefully fun uh, activities.
0: This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans Attica, you were deeply involved in this project what any other aspects of it you want to highlight
1: um, I, I was going to mention, you know, one of my, I think one of everyone's favorite games, and it may be that most people know about it already, but um, the bre- breathing with the monkeys, the rockabye, so we call it rockabye now, um, where the children lie on their backs and the very young children can have a, a small stuffed animal resting on their belly, and you can do this with older children and adults too with a pillow or a bean bag or something like that. Um, I think it's really a wonderful way for children to just get the visceral experience of noticing their in-breath and their out-breath, both feeling the experience of how that settles them, Um, and also just having the physical experience that really gets them so quickly into the present moment they can feel this stuffed animal going up and down and it also is is just such a naturally I think fun and pleasing experience for a child we often explain to them that the game is that the monkeys are very tired and need to take a nap and the thing that helps them fall asleep is your breath rocking them very gently up and down Um, so there's it's appealing to children and what they naturally want to do with play and also connecting it to um, the present moment and, and their ability to start paying attention to what's happening in their bodies.
0: You know, I know I know there are challenges in teaching this stuff to kids, but in some ways, th- do you think they're naturals?
1: I do. I always say that. Susan's nodding her head. <laughs> I, w- I wasn't sure if she would
2: agree, but um, yes, go ahead. Yeah, they have a lot less baggage than we do often, and so we don't have to kind of fight through that baggage to get down mm-hmm. to the experience.
1: Um, Yeah, that was one of the things that really surprised me and kind of blew my mind, really, when I started working with kids um, with Susan, was noticing that they were asking a lot of the same questions that adults ask. And um, I would say even overall sooner in their practice than most adults. So they, they advance, I think, overall in general more quickly. And um, they just get it. They're able to access the experience and I think Susan's right that there are just less obstacles to being in the present moment, to actually just doing the work um, of meditation when you're doing a formal meditation practice and um, to just receiving the benefits of it that much more quickly.
0: What, what's the most surprising question you've gotten from a kid?
1: Um, a second grader, I, can't, I don't know the, the exact phrasing of it, but a second grader was clearly having a very interesting and concentrated experience in a very um, basic um, counting breaths meditation practice. And they were actually, this class had gotten pretty advanced, and they were doing about 10 minutes or more, um, where I would guide them and talk them through, but they were sitting in a 10-minute meditation. And at the end, we were discussing what we experienced, and she said um, she, was, she was very interested in what the present moment is, and she kept saying, the present moment's always here, but it's always disappearing. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to just understand that better, and she she was asking questions like, how long is a moment? And what is, she really said, what is the present moment? Like, the closer she got to it, the more she she understood how hard it was actually to get our minds around what our, what our experience is. And she was really getting at something deep, like what consciousness is. Um, and I think those types of questions lead to questions about neuroscience and Physics and it's it's just it's a fascinating area, but I, I guess I don't know. I can't give you the exact question, but it was.
0: I'm dying to hear how you answered it.
1: <laughs> That's a good question. I don't remember that as well as I remember her asking. Um, did you, Susan? Let what's me think great, about you. you go yeah, ahead.
2: yeah. What's great about that story that Annika's telling is I think it it really dovetails well with your other question about kids and whether it's easier with kids and I think part of the reason it's easier with kids is that they're just so more keyed into the experience right. and they have so much less of a idea of where meditation is supposed to take them what meditation is supposed to be like or the need to kind of ruminate around it over and over again so the type of responses we get from kids are really far more direct reporting back of actual experiences that are often mm-hmm. truly meditative experiences. Mm -hmm. the types of things that it sometimes takes adults a long time Mm -hmm. to kind of settle down below the rumination to actually experience themselves.
1: Um, I do remember now generally how I responded and I think it was how I respond to most of their comments which is just more of an encouraging response that how fascinating it was and basically yes this is what happens when you pay closer and closer attention and how interesting and also just saying simply I don't know I, I have these questions too and we're, I think it also those types of things really are great moments for helping connect um, human beings with each other with each other children with each other because they realize we all when we get down to it we're all having this experience and we don't know exactly what it is and we have all these questions and it's interesting to think about and contemplate and um, so I, I think I probably just did my usual um, encouraging talk of yes that's it and this is what's so wonderful about um, the practice of mindfulness meditation and I love hearing about this um, and I wonder if other people have felt this way and I think we probably did we often will check in with other students in the classroom to see if other people um, know what what the one student who's speaking up is talking about and I would say almost always if not always there are other children in the room who are having the same experience whether they're Grappling with a difficult emotion, whether they're having a hard time sitting still or whether they're getting at you know the beauty of the mystery of the present moment, they they all they all can share in their experiences.
0: Side note, mini plug: uh, Annika has a great children's book called "I Wonder," in which you talk about how parents can help kids embrace the various mysteries of the universe. Mm-hmm. It seems to fit nicely with what you just said, mm-hmm. um, Susan. What is inner kids?
2: Oh wow, Inner Kids was a foundation that um, my husband and I created in the early 2000s that we closed down after about 10 years. Uh, at the time, I had a law practice and I was going into schools volunteering, and Annika came in and volunteered too, along with some other people who were some really strong meditation teachers like Jean Lushtak, Daniel Davis, and uh, there were costs associated that we all worked on a volunteer basis, but there were costs associated with that, like cushions and uh, and mats and uh, insurance and that sort of thing. So we had a small foundation that raised money every year to cover the costs so that nobody was actually out of pocket, but everybody was volunteering and then around uh, after about ten years, the need for that foundation. Eased, and so the name inner kids we kept because we liked it and uh, it's become the name for the model that we use uh, for this program which really is teaching whole families about mindfulness and meditation as, uh, as a full picture with attention balance and compassion.
0: And uh, so what are the, what are the current activities in which you're involved?
2: right now i i do i do teachers trainings you know i've written a few books and i do a lot of volunteer work going in and working with individual families mentoring people that sort of thing i've got a couple of projects coming up uh that will be more again like oriented toward parents i Um, I do what shows up in front of me at any given time. And I've got to tell you, my schedule is really, really busy, but I'm out of the building mode right now. I'm out of building a foundation. I'm out of building a career. I'm out of building pretty much anything. And I'm much more into the trying to be responsive to what the needs are, um, and what's drawing me and my passion.
0: That's really interesting actually to hear as somebody who's firmly in the building mode and Mm -hmm. exhausted.
2: I'm a little older than you. I'm not that. I mean, I'm 60 and so I'm in a position now where, and believe me, I, I pushed and I built for a long time. But I think it does happen with practice for those who really want a little encouragement on that front. You know, the practice does take you to a place where um, you do start to see things a little bit differently and look at things a little differently mm-hmm. and priorities begin to shift it doesn't mean i'm any less busy and i could show you my email box and i could show you my call list and tell you the projects that i've got lined up but but the the weight of them in my mind and in my priorities changes and um it's just it's just a relief i got to tell you
0: well, no I, I my my uncle when he turned 60 somebody asked him how he felt and he said off the hook
2: <laughs> that's great <laughs> yeah. that's great yeah
0: so let me ask um, a few more kids uh, questions about ki- the, the, the teaching of kids meditation, teaching meditation to kids in schools, because this right. has at times been a controversial idea. Uh, people are worried about it being sort of sneakily sectarian uh, in some way. Uh, what What are your views on this?
2: Well, I'm I'm glad people um, are taking it seriously, and I'm glad people haven't completely drunk the Kool Aid because I think that this is extremely important I think it is one of the most important things out there um, right now facing this country just how we how we work with education with the limited time and other resources including money in the schools and you know having having been doing this you know largely on a volunteer basis and and working way harder than Made sense. I mean, I believe one of the reasons the movement has galloped forward so quickly beyond any of our expectations is because there's a whole world of people out there working for less money and spending more time on something out of passion that it's the movement has gone very, very far. But we have to be careful. We're at a point that we have to be very, very careful as far as making sure that the people who are teaching are well trained our actual practitioners themselves understand the theory behind the practice i mean that was when the shift came for this last book mindful games that probably wouldn't have happened if i hadn't been out in the field training teachers and uh supervising teachers and going into schools and observing and i had this moment where i realized oh wow you know people have figured out what these activities are and they're ringing a bell and having people raise their hand but if you ask the teacher what's your teaching objective what is it you're trying to train what does that that practice do and how do you deal with the problems that arise they said oh geez i don't know if i Ring the bell and kids raise their hand, they calm down and it's really nice and it creates a calmer classroom. And usually it does, but that teaching of mindfulness did not have the same rigor as the teaching of science or math. People didn't have teaching objectives. People didn't have training. They didn't understand the theory behind the practice. And that is problematic. So we have to, without damping down the enthusiasm, we have to, you know, bolster up our, our basically continuing education training.
1: There's something that Susan was talking about the mm-hmm. other day, which I'm actually going to put to both of you if, if this is a place you want to go. But I thought it was interesting. Susan was just traveling recently with her husband, and she was talking about being around um, monks, teachers. Uh, she was talking about the difference between kind of the traditional experience of having a career that supports your practice so that you know you maybe start your job later in the morning which enables you to have your meditation practice in the morning and the the difference between practice being primary and then your work supporting that versus what you know the western culture is different and it's understandable that this is what's happening here but there's you i mean susan can say all this better than i and maybe you don't want to go there so no,
2: no no i'm happy i'm happy to say it i i might ruffle a couple feathers but um but i have a feeling um it's worth saying we just my husband and i because of our kids are now grown and out of college. We're able to do this. Um, our husband, My husband and I take a month uh, as often as we can, once a year if we can. Sometimes it's every couple of years. And travel in a place that is a little bit challenging to travel. And this year we took a month and we went through Indonesia and Cambodia and Vietnam and spent a lot of time with Buddhists, practicing Buddhists. Um, and I, although it was not, The intention, I came back really quite struck by being around people who were helping tourists, like my husband and I, who had chosen careers that were tailored so that they had enough time to practice. And so their practice was driving their career choice. And their career choice wasn't teaching mindfulness, teaching meditation, or building building meditation centers. Their careers were working in the tourist industry, but they were set up so that they'd get up at 5.30 in the morning, do an hour and a half of chanting, um, which was the type of practice that most of them were doing, go to work, come back, and have their practice again in the evening. one I was really struck in that one person took us very early on to sit outside a monastery where the monks were doing their morning chanting. And when he came to pick us up, complete volunteer basis, he came with this tiny, tiny little car. And uh, he said that 18 of his fellow students of their meditation teacher had come together and bought this car so that they could travel back and forth to meet this teacher so they chose careers that allowed them to practice more and the reason I was so struck by this is because I feel that in the US right now and one of the problems we're having in this movement is it's becoming a little careerist and people's uh, practice is is fueling their career and they want they want to be teaching mindfulness, or they want to be leading mindfulness groups, or they want to be building mindfulness apps, or they want to be building mindful products. And so they practice in a way to fuel that career as a way the other way, as opposed to the other way around, which is whatever they do to work is to fuel the opportunity to practice. And and that that's different in the last 20 years since I started working and practice, started my own meditation practice something has flipped and and it's it, it lies someplace in there i think
0: it's interesting because it, i might be on the wrong side of that line
1: well no i think i think the the i i realized that was I was about to say this is not this is not an attack on you <laughs> I don't take it that way I, th- I think
0: it's a really interesting uh, well, I think thing it's just explore. something
1: we need to pay attention to and yeah. grapple with' because I think it's inevitable, and you know Susan and I are both we, we have to think about this also and when you're writing books, and you know it's there that that just is the culture we're in, and that is um it, it it's a natural um, manifestation of it here, but I think it is something we have to really keep an eye on.
2: Yeah, and i got to say, I, I don't know you, Dan, but I have listened to a bunch of your podcasts and read your books, and I I doubt that you're on the wrong side of that line. I don't think it's a line in the sand. I think it's about not a line but an awareness of the problem, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I see missing with a lot of this uh, is that, this is a tension, and the tension is doubly uh, caused by you know the changes in the publishing industry, and the fact that the secularization of Buddhism um, in that you know, we're all supposed to be out there promoting our books, we're out there supposed to be promoting our Facebook page, we're out there, suppo- unless if we boost our Facebook posts, they're not going to be seen so it's about being aware that we have to balance this, I mean if you have something to say that is that came out of a practice experience you have, which I believe you did because I read your book, uh, then it's important you say that because it's coming from your practice experience. And if the only way to get that heard means you've got to do some self-promotion and you've got to buy a couple uh, Facebook ads to boost your post, otherwise nobody's going to see it, that's all completely consistent in my mind Mm -hmm. with the practice. It all comes down to motivation. But if you're not aware of this um this uh, tightrope world walking to this battle balancing app, mm-hmm. then it's kind of hard to to sort it right
0: you know I've, I've actually discussed this with the aforementioned Joseph Goldstein who uh, and as a result of Annika and Sam um, is now my teacher. Um, and you know we talk about uh, motivation specifically as running along a continuum you know I I think mm-hmm. about, for me, you know, my the motivation behind my you know meditation evangelical side hustle um, is you know runs the gamut from. Uh, really crass stuff around oh well wow i wrote a book and people bought it and maybe i can do more and that's you know i get attention and it's can it can be somewhat remunerative and it's exciting and there's lots of ego you know and dopamine in there um to um the sort of more altruistic end which is that i it's made a big difference in my life and i think it's the next big public health revolution i think i can do a little bit to catalyze it and i love talking to people about meditation and seeing the lights go on and knowing that actually this is they can relate to their mind differently um, and that's an extremely gratifying thing and and I explained that once to Joseph because we were talking about why would I have written my book and and he's like no I think that's fine it's Mm -hmm. just to know that that's all there.
1: Yeah, well, and also you're doing the thing that I think um, sometimes Susan and I worry about when we, we don't see, which is you have developed a very strong practice yourself. You're doing the work. You know the experience, and you're not just talking about something you've read about. You, you're you experiencing it, and that, I think that's one of the key pieces um, of an, something important that we need to keep in place. Or,
0: yeah, well, I think yeah. it's a really useful point. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, mm-hmm. Just before we close, look back to kids. a second. Um, Susan identified one of the issues with the sort of scaling up of of meditation pedagogy in in, uh, educational institutions, which is that there aren't a lot of qualified teachers, um, and we need to get more rigorous around that. But the other uh, issue that sometimes gets brought up, and I mentioned it earlier, is that some parents worry that this is some sort of creeping Eastern spirituality into their Children's minds and lives, and and they want the kids to be um, Christian or Jewish or Muslim or whatever it is they're raising them. Uh, anika is that a concern that parents should have, or, or is it unjustified?
1: Uh, well, I I definitely don't think it's a concern parents should have, but it's something that we've encountered a lot. And I actually think Susan should probably answer this because she spent so much more time in schools, um, but. No, we we actually didn't use the word meditation in the very beginning because of this this concern. Um, why don't I, I feel like you
2: would do a better job of explaining why we don't think it is a concern? Yeah, i I think I think it doesn't need to be a concern, and I think it goes back to this issue of teacher training and really making sure that the people who are delivering. The practices are well trained just as we would want uh, them to be well trained if they're teaching math or science or history. And I think that the problems we run into are the same problems that you have if a teacher is not well trained in mindfulness and meditation that you have if somebody's not trained well in PE or math or science or history. And so I think if we just think of teaching this work in schools, as we would teach any other subject. And if there's any question about does this belong in school, does this make sense to teach it in this way, just take out the word mindfulness and throw in the word math. Does it make sense to teach math in this way? And if it doesn't, then go back and take a look at it. But I think we are still in the evolving, very early on stages of how to bring secular mindfulness into the world and out into the world and the research is young and uh and the programs are still pretty young. And teasing apart, what are the active elements that are working? Is it the community aspect of it? Is it the self-regulation aspect? Is it the, is it the themes of learning to be less attached to outcome, of learning to be a little bit more open-minded? What are the things that are actually working and how are the best way to present those? That's going to take a really careful, close collaboration between scientists and program developers. But we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait till that collaboration is complete before giving these children the things that we have seen really good early results on so we just have to be careful and responsible and um, and really up on the training up the training. but
0: if if, if I'm a uh, Christian parent am I unjustified in saying hey this is you guys it, it's it's obvious and you admit that these practices, evolved from Eastern spiritual traditions, specifically in this case, Buddhism. No, Um,
2: no. I mean, yes. Is the parent fair in saying that? Absolutely. And is the parent right in saying that? Yes, because we have not, myself included, done a good enough job of really crafting the programs and crafting the message to uh, really hone in on what mindfulness is which is and how it is really woven through many different types of things, religion, yes, but also through psychology and through good solid education, other ways of education, Montessori, Waldorf, all of these great educational uh, processes. If you look at them, they have elements of what we're calling mindfulness. So we have to do a better a job, better job on languaging. But yeah, I mean, any parent is, it's totally fair to voice these questions and what we need to make sure is that the people in the schools delivering mindfulness can answer them.
1: I would actually, I would add to that just from my personal experience, I learned mindfulness meditation in a so completely secular context and I, I was actually just surprised to hear you call yourself a buddhist dan because <laughs> i've never considered myself a buddhist i actually don't even know that much about buddhism i probably know more than the average person but um to me these what resonates with me about mindfulness meditation and just meditation in general is and the reason I thought it was something we should be teaching children is because it seems like such a natural human state and all of the things that we're teaching um have really nothing to do with religion or a religious point of view um there's nothing otherworldly about it at all everything that we're teaching is about the human mind and how to experience um the human mind how to understand it better it is to me i really just see it as as a human as a pretty natural human experience um
0: yeah, I mean, I, f- I fully agree with that. I mean, the, yeah. the, it, it, it may have been described well by the Buddhists, but it right. is nonetheless an innate human capacity, a birthright mm-hmm. for homo sapiens. And mm-hmm. just because I believe it's the case that the Muslims uh, in Baghdad uh, just— came up with algebra but that doesn't mean it's yeah but that is still a fundamental mathematical reality Mm -hmm. um so uh it yeah i mean i i obviously agree with you guys but i'm just Mm -hmm. playing devil's advocate Mm -hmm. um what was i going to say before about just just to answer the implied question around me and buddhism um i some of my listeners will have heard me give this shtick before, so I'll keep it short. But I mean, I consider myself a Buddhism along the line, a Buddhist along the uh, lines of the way Stephen Batchelor, one of my favorite writers, uh, who sadly has not been on this podcast, um, describes uh, Buddhism, which is it's not something to believe in; it's something to do. Mm-hmm. And in you know, I do Buddhism um, mm-hmm. just the same way I do journalism, <laughs> um, uh, and mm-hmm. I think. The practices are immensely useful to me personally, and uh, the intellectual infrastructure of the thing the philosophy is also really interesting and uh, does not require me to believe in anything I can't prove and mm-hmm. um, which I'm constitutionally unable to do and the Buddha I did espouse some metaphysical stuff around karma and rebirth and, and enlightenment and but he specifically said to people, "Hey, you know take it or leave it try it out mm-hmm. for yourself and and so to me it's a quote unquote religion that skeptics can and easily join and interestingly it's also a religion where the more fundamentalist you get Mm -hmm. the more Mm -hmm. fundamental you get about what the buddha said Mm -hmm. the more secular it becomes
1: yes absolutely and i would also add that just to be clear in susan's program in her curriculum and everything that we teach children there's nothing metaphysical Every Everything that you were pointing to in Buddhism that you were saying you could take or leave, none of that would ever be included or or has ever been included in.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I think just to try to bring, bring it back to kids and bring it back to parents and bring it back to schools, I think it's really important to remember that the issues facing schools are somewhat different than the issues facing parents on their own. Because it's a school, we have to pay a lot more attention to how these programs are being disseminated, how they're being brought out. Are, can we actually research them? The research is really, really new. And so we can't overstate the value of the research or the state of the research, even though we're very enthusiastic and excited. And so the schools is something that takes great care, and we want to take great care with it. With parents... Parents can go with their feel and what is really pulling them in and what's drawing them and experiment with it and keep it fun. Because one thing that I want to make sure we end with is that this isn't all just sitting on a cushion looking at your looking at your navel. I mean, one of my favorite stories about working with kids are many of them have to do with the community and the different activities that are active and playful and singing and Letting ladybugs go outside, and then what happens when that ladybug goes or those grasshoppers go and and a little um, a little lizard comes out and eats one. and then how do you deal with that in the moment? And those are the, making flags and singing songs. and uh, those are the kinds of things that we do in addition to the quiet sedentary practices that make this fun for everybody and have a lot of space and have a lot of enjoyment and um, and hopefully, we just can have fun with it, and it'll be a benefit.
0: It's a nice closing note, Susan. Thank you. Uh, thank you to both of you guys. Really appreciate it. If people want to learn more about each of you individually, can this is what we call the plug zone? Can you just guys go into plug mode and give me everything you got in terms of where people can go to learn more about you, what you, what the what you, the products uh, you've come up with, including books that you think people should uh, reach out for, et cetera, et cetera. Susan, you, you can start.
2: Okay, so my website is my name. It's SusanKaiserGreenland.com, or else you can get to it through InnerKids.com. And there's a couple of books out there. There's The Mindful Child, there's The Mindful Games, and then there's these very cool activity cards that um, have the games on it.
1: My website is also my name. It's just AnnikaHarris.com. And I have a page there um, with a mindfulness for children page that has some guided meditations. And uh, my book, my children's book, I Wonder. And um, Mindful Games is can be read about on, on Susan's website.
0: We went in so many directions I wouldn't have foreseen. But that is, yeah. that's the benefit of mindful conversation. Um, keep up the good work. And uh, thank you again.